नमस्कार आदाब सत्यकाल फ्रेंड्स दिस इज के जी एस यू स्टैंडफर्ड नाइन्टी पॉइंट वन एफ एम आई एम प्रांजली एन यूर लिसनिंग टू चाई टाइम वेलकम टू द शो दोस्तों इफ़ यू आर अ रेगुलर लिसनर ऑफ चाई टाइम यू विल नो दैट आई ट्राई टू कवर वेरियस एस्पेक्ट्स ऑफ साउथ एशियन लाइफ एंड कल्चर एंड इन्वाइट अ ब्रॉड अरे ऑफ अकम्पलिश्ड गेस्ट आई लव हैविंग दैम ऑल बट यू ऑल नो दैट राइटर्स होल्ड अ वेरी स्पेशल प्लेस इन माई हार्ट माई चाय बिकम्स एक्स्ट्रा स्वीट वैन आई मीट अ पर्सन विथ अ गिफ्टेड कलम और पेन एंड येस टूडेज चाय टाइम इज वन सच स्पेशल चाय टाइम एज वी हैव एन अकम्पलिश्ड राइटर एंड जर्नलिस्ट जहिर जान मोहम्मद ऑन अवर शो ही इज़ बेस्ड इन पोर्टलैंड ओरेगन एंड अहमदाबाद इंडिया ही इज़ करेंटली राइटिंग अ बुक अबाउट द लार्जेस्ट गेट ऑफ मुस्लिम्स इन इंडिया एंड एरिया नोन एज जहापुरा स्टे ट्यून्ड not only Stanford Hospital and Lucille Packard Children's Hospital but several other local hospitals as well and they need your help to save lives if you are in good health and between the ages of 17 and 74 the Stanford Blood Center invites you to donate you can even make an appointment online all blood types are needed for more information please visit bloodcenter.stanford.edu that's bloodcenter.stanford.edu or call 650-723-7831. For more than 55 years, the colleges and universities of the United Negro College Fund have helped thousands of students rise to new heights of academic achievement. When you support the United Negro College Fund, you support the dreams of these young people. Often these are dreams that were once out of reach. Rise to the challenge and support the UNCF. because a mind is a terrible thing to waste Welcome back friends we have Zahir Jan Muhammad on our show today Zahir is a writer and journalist he has received fellowships from the McDowell Colony where he was the inaugural co-recipient of the Encox Chambers Fellowship for Long-Term Journalism as well as from the Messer Refuge the Norman Mailer Center and the San Francisco Writers Grotto before that he spent a decade working in politics From 2006 to 2009 he worked as the advocacy director for the Amnesty International where he managed the organization's lobbying public outreach and media work on the Middle East and North Africa During this time he appeared on CNN Fox News BBC NPR and Al Jazeera He has briefed the senior officials at the White House and the State Department and authored numerous congressional resolutions In 2009 he was awarded uh by UN for his commitment to the human rights and it's our pleasure that Zahir is on chai time today welcome to the show Zahir thank how are you good thank you thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure so uh i gave uh, your introduction and of course you have been doing so many things and you're still working but first tell me about your background and how did you decide to take journalism as your profession sure no problem so uh, i grew up nearby in sacramento california my parents are indian from tanzania so my parents are gujarati but my grandparents left gujarat in 1925 for dar es salaam tanzania so my mom and dad were both born and raised in dar es salaam tanzania mm-hmm. and then they um they came to the us in the 70s i was born in sacramento And then um I went to school at Berkeley and UCLA and then after um after 9/11 I went to India uh-huh. to work with the American India Foundation and I got to Gujarat just before the the riots started in February 2002. So after the riots I started doing human rights work and one of the things that that kept coming up in my human rights work was this idea that people who are displaced um 
A, there are more displaced people in the world than ever before. There are more refugees in the world than ever before. Mm -hmm. But also that people who are refugees or people who are displaced are displaced today for longer than ever before. Mm. And so when I was working in, in Congress in 2000, uh, from 2009 to 2011 in the U.S. Congress, you know, I've always had this desire to write. Um, I just hadn't had the opportunity or I didn't make the opportunity. So mm -hmm. then um, I decided to, so, to leave my job. So I left my job in March 2011 and I went to Ahmedabad. Um, and that's sort of what started me on my path of journalism because, you know, I, I fell in love with India all over again. And then I also found this subject and I was really interested in looking at what was the aftermath of the, these riots that I witnessed when I was 25. Uh, what happens, you know, 10, 12, 15 years later after a person is you know, pushed out of their homes. <clears throat> so that's how I started, you know, developing this interest in writing. And then I found that these were stories that weren't being told and I wanted mm -hmm. to tell them. And partly it was also my own story as well, too, because for me... Um, my, my, I didn't grow up. Um, I didn't grow up with Indian cousins. I mean, I grew up with cousins from Tanzania who are Indian, but mm -hmm. we didn't. You know, we don't have any family in India. So for me, my connection to India is sort of you know one removed. You know. Yeah. Um, so that's I'm, what I was going to ask you. That you went there as a visitor, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how did you uh, find it? Like, was it <coughs> difficult for you to go? At, because you went there, and then this all happened. Right? Yeah. So you had a very different experience. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I have to say, like, so, um, you know, after the, the tragic attacks of t September 11th, mm -hmm. you know, I was uh, I was in L.A., I was working in L.A., I just finished my graduate studies in public policy, mm -hmm. and, you know, there was a lot of um, a lot of animosity towards, you know, Muslims and South Asians and, and Arabs, mm -hmm. and I could feel it. I mean, of course, today it's so much worse with Donald Trump. I never imagined it would get worse. But, um, you know, I think like a lot of Indian Americans growing up, I had this desire to understand where, you know, my, my heritage, my roots. And I think this is not just among Indian Americans. I see this among my Korean friends, my mm -hmm. Chinese friends, my friends sure. from Nigeria. So, you know, I, I went to India in 2002 expecting, well, I'll go for a few months, you know, mm -hmm. do some NGO work, come back and, you know, life, you know, go back to normal. Yeah. But then, you know, I arrived in Ahmedabad, um, first time ever to Gujarat. And it was actually the first time anyone in my family had been back to Gujarat since my, my grandparents left in 1925. I see. Okay. Um, so when I went there, I arrived mm -hmm. on February 15th and I started working on February 25th, 2002. And I was working in a Hindu slum in Ahmedabad um, called Parladnagar. And then, um, uh, sorry, Praveen Nagar. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, you know, two days later, unfortunately, the Godhra train attack happened. You know, the tragic Godhra train fire. Mm. Um, 58 Hindus were killed. And then the, the riots happened, you know, yeah. uh, immediately after. So for me, I was 25 years old. You know, I'd really only been in Gujarat for 12 days at that point. You know, I'm Muslim. I was okay. staying with the Hindu host family. Um, it was very difficult. It was, it was something that you know, um, it's really, it's this fate, it's sort of kis you know, kismet, you know, I didn't, I didn't expect the timing, but it, it had a really big impact on me. And for me, partly the thing that really haunted me that made me want to go back was thinking, when I left in July 2002, the refugee camps were still open. The relief oh, camps were still yeah, open in, in Ahmedabad. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was always this question of, okay, so what happens after a human rights tragedy? Right. Yes. What happens after someone is pushed out of Syria and they end up in, you know, Greece? What happens? Ten generally, what happens is when we talk about riots, we we tend to talk about who did it, who's at fault, and exactly. why did it happen. And yeah. I think those are important. And there are people like Ashutosh mm -hmm. Varshney who do brilliant work examining those questions. But for me, I was more interested in sort of the human angle mm -hmm. of sort of saying, okay, 
that experience really changed my life. You know, fundamentally, I'm a different person today at the age of 39 because of what I saw at 25. So when I went back in uh, in March 2011, you know, I didn't go with the intention to write about this ghetto. I I went thinking, okay, I'll spend maybe a few months here and then come back and go back and do you know human rights work again in Washington. But, you know, I couldn't get a, a flat. It just was a simple process. I was looking for a flat in Ahmedabad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, and I knew about the housing problems, but I didn't, ex- you know, maybe because I'm American or I don't know, maybe I'm just arrogant. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't expect it to be so bad. Hmm. You know, um, in Bombay, you can kind of find little ways yes. to like go around it, you know? Yeah. You know, there are, you know, buildings in Bombay, like in Bandra, that love NRIs. Yes, <laughs> Amdavad yes. doesn't work that it's way. It's different, yeah. Even if you're an NRI, even if you pay double the rent, <laughs> I wasn't able to get, get a flat as, as a Muslim. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to use a fake name because I had to use a fake name during the riots. So, you know, then people said, if you want to get a flat here, you have to live in this ghetto. You have to live in Juwapura. And, you know, back then, this is before Uber had come to India, and I couldn't even get, you know, rickshaws into this ghetto. I would have to take, you know, a Hindu rickshaw, like a Hindu driver to take me to the border, and then I would have to cross the border and then take a a Muslim rickshaw into the Uh ghetto to my flat. So I thought, that's a really interesting story. Now, the thing that's kind of hard for people to believe is in 2011... I wasn't really interested in Narendra Modi mm-hmm. because I had no idea that he would become prime minister, to be honest. I knew he would win a third term mm-hmm. in 2012, mm-hmm. but I thought, there's no way, there's no way he's going to be prime minister. So I didn't really think much about it. And even when people told me in interviews that he wants to be um, prime minister, I said, yeah, but so many people want to be, some- Donald Trump wants to be president. He's not yeah. going to be. I hope not. And then Modi kept yeah. getting more and more and more popular. And so when I went in 2011, mm-hmm. um, you know, I really thought I'm going to need to spend some time here. And then I ended up spending four years there because um, I really sort of fell in love all over again with India. And um, I fell in love with this ghetto that I was writing about. And mm-hmm. I was able to, it took me a long time to get people to open up and tell their stories. But I thought these are stories that aren't being told because the, the way that we write stories about Gujarat is, is Modi good or is Modi bad? And I think those mm. are boring stories. Yeah. I mean, for me, I should just say very, I'm not an objective person. Mm. In my mind, Modi was responsible for the riots. I believe he failed. I believe he could have saved lives. That that's not I don't even I don't lose any sleep over that. Those of us who saw what happened in 2002, we know Modi was culpable. So that was an interesting question. For me the question is, okay, it's now been, you know, 12, 13 years later. Hmm. What happened to those whose homes were burned down? Where are they now? Yes. And that to me was the question. Yeah, so who did it? What happened? More than that, yeah, we all, and we are still worried about it, right? And still things are not really good there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the tension, I mean, today, just before I came here, I was, Mm -hmm. you know, there's these massive protests happening in Gujarat today. The Dalits are protesting, Mm. you know, and um, so it's still very tense, you know. And I think partly the tension is because, you know, in Gujarat, there was this promise of development hmm. and all over India. And partly it's because the Congress party is is awful and I've seen it up close and, you know, Rahul Gandhi is such an uninspiring figure. So, you know, I think that people are hungry for development. They're hungry yes. for improvements. I mean, yeah. when I was in, in Gujarat for the four years that I was there, 
the the price of transportation rose dramatically. The price of milk rose uh, rose dramatically. Hmm. So cost of living is getting petrol. Petrol is just getting so high, so, and so I think yes. people want change. And I think Modi offered a very dynamic vision of India. Hmm. I think what's happened is it's come with all this other stuff as well too. And I think those of us in Gujarat, we've known that. You know, Modi is really there for for the upper caste and for the business elites. And I think now the realization is happening, and you see all these Dalits rising up and protesting. And it's very sad because the Dalits were very much used in Gujarat during the riots against Muslims. Um, when I did interviews with Dalits, they would tell me that as long as we as long as we kill the Muslims, and you know, economically we'll do better. Um, and it's sad because you know that. They don't really believe that. They're, they're being told this. They're fed like Yeah, that. they're yeah. felt that. And they, they believe it because, you know, it's like when people are desperate. And right now being in the United States, you know, people are desperate. You know, the in the, we're in California now. The, the California State University System, the CSU, there's 460,000 students of which 10% are homeless. 10% mm. are homeless. Now, I'm yeah. not saying that any of them should support Trump. But all of a sudden, I understand People are very frustrated right now. Cost of living is getting so high in this yes. country where you and I are in, in Palo Alto. When sometimes when people are in economic hardships, they'll follow these crazy ideas. Yeah. They'll follow people like Trump. They'll follow it's s- tempting for them to believe. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think Modi came along at the right time. And people said, oh, here's this man. He's charismatic. He speaks beautifully. You know, he's a strong man. And we need strong power. And so, um, you know, people were, were, were fed that lie and they they believed him. But if not Modi, who do you think was the other option? Do you think anyone there was even offering that? Well, no. I mean, I think I think to me, I think partly the way we, we speak about Indian politics is, you know, um, anytime someone criticizes Modi, you say, well, Rahul Gandhi is just as bad. And I find that to me what, you know, the, what I always say to people is mm-hmm. we need to ask politicians more questions it has to be more transparent exactly i mean and so so for me you know when i was in gujarat Mm. um i was there from the whole of the the lead up to the election so from fall of 2013 up until modi won in may 2014 and i saw all the top journalists come to amdabad and many of them i i saw them do their reporting Mm -hmm. and i was shocked by their unwillingness to ask basic, tough questions to Modi and the BJP. Hmm. And what I think, for for me as a writer, as a journalist, Hmm. my responsibility is to ask tough questions. Our failure isn't that we said, oh, you know, we, we, we supported Modi. You know, at the time of the two options, you know, Rahul Gandhi is awful and, you know, Modi is, is just as awful. But why are we asking tough questions? Now, we know Modi was silent when, let's say, an art student in Baroda was attacked. We know Modi was silent. We know mm. Modi had the option to choose reconciliation after the riots, but he didn't. He chose elections. We mm. know that Modi forced the camps open. He, we know that Modi pushed people into ghettos. We know these things. We know that Modi built up his cabinet with hardline Hindu nationalists. We know that Modi attacked the, you know, turned the other way when Dalits were being attacked in Gujarat, when farmers were committing suicide. We know these things, right? It's not like I'm making mm. this up. You can Google yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, why didn't we ask those questions? Mm. And now we're sitting in 2016 and people are saying, oh, my God, look what's happening in India, all this intolerance. 
But Modi's rule from the time he started until he left in 2014, this was his, this was his, his rule. He was like this. We know he didn't like anyone to question him. We know he was vindictive. Um, so why didn't we ask that? And that, to me, is our collective failure here. Yeah, so whoever we, we elect, I think, yeah, it's not about that person individually, but about asking questions and what goes behind it, right? Absolutely. And I think the the one thing for, for listeners that's, you know, when I witnessed the riots hmm. in 2002, uh, and this is sort of a sensitive point, but, you know, anyone... When I was in Muzaffarnagar hmm. in 2013, when, you know, anyone who's gone through riots, the, the, at some point you get over the sight of seeing dead bodies. As, hmm. as, 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 uh, as, as horrible as that sounds, you, you get over that. You, you get over the sight of mobs coming and looking for you. You get over that. What you don't get over, and what I'm still not over, is the fact that in the middle of this violence, you had families who I reached out to that refused to help me, that refused to help other Muslims. When I was in Muzaffarnagar, that is the issue that comes up again and again. Now, when here in the United States, it's very easy for us to sort of say, oh, Trump is bad, Trump is bad, and, and mm. to make... We also have to ask ourselves, what is it about certain segments of Americans that want Donald Trump, that are, that are okay with his racism, that are okay with his misogyny? We also have to ask questions, as Indians, we have to ask questions, what is it about our willingness to tolerate violence when that violence is against a group, quote-unquote, not of our own, when it's Dalits, when it's Muslims, when it's Christians? And that, to me, is a theme about riots in India that I'm trying to explore in my writing. Yeah. I, I couldn't... It's, so, it's too easy to say that Modi is bad. That's obvious. It's like saying water is wet. Obviously, water is wet. We know these things. Come on, like, let's have a more interesting conversation. And I'm not saying to you, but for us as Indians, I want to know, in the middle of the riots, when, when I was trying to get help, hmm. and so many families refuse to help me. That's, that's to me, is what, what, when people say, well, why did you go back? You know, why did you quit your job in the U.S. Congress to go? That's what it was. I'm trying yeah, to understand, you know, you know the, the, what they call the banality of evil. No, and I totally agree with you that we all have been reading, and I used to read each and every detail, and I'm still having sleepless nights. Trust me, I cannot find peace because of those riots. But you being in the middle of that, I can totally understand your sentiments. And the sad part is still... There are so many things that need to be improved there, right? It's ongoing. But this was your experience in India. And when we talk about United States, you were born and raised here. Yeah. And you are as American as anyone. Yeah. But you are a writer of color. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I find, um, you know, I never really sort of thought about, I should say, really thought about, being like a person of color, being a writer of color up mm -hmm. until, you know, I would say sometime when I started, you know, living in India. And that was a very positive experience because it gave me some distance in terms of looking at my life in America. And mm -hmm. I started seeing, you know, the the newsrooms are very, are very white and they're very male. 
And so, <clears throat> so for example, let's look at the, the floods in Chennai that just happened, the awful floods. Yeah. You know, I have a good friend of mine, and she's a writer from Chennai, and she was trying to publish an article saying, these are some awful floods. Hmm. And she approaches a, an editor, and he says, oh, I don't think this is a big issue. I mean... For he, for for he, like as a white guy, it may not be a big issue. But when I open my Facebook, everyone is posting about yes, Chennai, yes. right? Because I have many friends from Chennai. I have many friends all over India, hmm. and even my friends who aren't Indian, my friends who are Pakistani or Bangladesh, they're also concerned too. So in my world, Chennai is big. Right now, in my world, Kashmir is big. So to me, we need to diversify the media in this country, and so much of I think that I. You know, that I'm really lucky is that being in India, I didn't really start writing in my life until I moved to India. And for me, I really developed my my voice as a writer writing for Indian audiences. I didn't start writing for white people, right? Yes. Because, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, but sometimes writing for white people, it's so annoying because, like, you have to dumb everything down. So, for example, imagine I'm telling you a story. Yeah. If I say, you know, I went to, you know, I, I ate Ras Gula, like, you know, in, like, you know, Chopati. Like, okay, yeah. you can, you'll get the reference right away. But yeah. then when you have to write for white people, it's like, you know, the Taj Mahal, comma, in Agra, comma, which is in UP, comma, which is the largest state in India, comma. It's like, come on, just come on, fast, 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 you know? Ask me about it. I teach this. Yeah. I mean, and the thing about it is that one thing yeah. I always joke with, you know, I teach writing in Portland is mm-hmm. like, you know, there are certain, I was born and raised in the U.S. Hmm. There are certain English words, quote unquote English words like marzipan, which is a type of sweet. I don't know what the hell that is, but I don't need to know every word. I, we all have smartphones. We can Google things. So <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yes, so I yes. also think that like, you know, we need right now, you know, it's so easy for us to talk about oh, you know, we need to, um, you know, we need to condemn Trump, we need to condemn racism. But let's come up with practical steps. Step number one is we need more diverse people in newsrooms. We need more shows like this. We need more diverse faculty. Because when I went to Berkeley so many years ago, from 94 to 98, you know, we were, you know, Berkeley was the majority of students were non-white. And yet we didn't sort of walk around campus that way. Hmm. Right. The faculty were still, you know, largely white. Yes. And so now I I tell students we're in a different moment right now. You know, I'm not a minority. I'm the majority in California. Yes. I have a California driver's license. I don't let anyone call me a minority. I'm not a minority. <laughs> True. I was in the majority at Berkeley. I was the majority at UCLA. I'm the majority in California. And I carry myself as someone like that. Hmm. So, you know, I was offered a minority scholarship recently and... Um, I, I turned it down. It was a tiny amount of money, first of all. But I said, like, because I'm not a minority. If, it's, not, if you have yes. a scholarship for white people in California, call it a minority. But let's be honest. I mean, I was joking with, you know, walking around campus. I was joking with your husband. Like, you just look at this campus. You, you Whites are in the minority on this campus at Stanford, at least at this moment today on, on Sunday. So it's like we also feel we should really empower ourselves. And I think, you know, partly I'm very thankful for being in India because it, it taught me you know, it, it allowed me to write for a non-white audience. It allowed me to write for Indians. And so, you know, I wrote about an experience of being profiled at um, JFK Airport for the Hindu. And, you know, that's an article that I probably wrote two years before, but no one in the U.S. would publish it. But the Hindu published it. So, you mm. know, I feel very lucky for the opportunities that I got, not just to write about Gujarat and about the riots, but also to write about my life in America. So India really, um, it was wonderful. It gave me so many opportunities. That's great. 
so you have been uh, writing for so long now and your articles have appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, Newsweek, the Boston Review, the Guardian and many other publications, right? And at the moment you are a regular contributor to the Economic Times. Yeah, so tell us more about the thinking that goes on behind your ideas and your stories. Yeah, sure. So um I think part of what really inspires me in my my writing is I'm interested in looking at people who are on the margins. Mm-hmm. So so for example, um a lot of my articles that you just mentioned have been about um about my time in Gujarat. But you know, for the Economic Times right now, partly what I'm trying to do is to to sort of tease out a little bit more of the Indian and Indian American experience in US politics. Hmm. So for example, you know, I wrote a piece for the Economic Times about you know Bernie Sanders is oftentimes praised for not talking about when he was running not talking about being Jewish hmm. right and i yes. wrote a piece saying you know my friend who's 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 Sikh when she ran for office for a very small office in virginia hmm. she didn't have that option right because for for so many of us who are people of color in this country as soon as they hear your name or they hear your quote unquote accent the first thing you have to say to them is oh i'm originally from here hmm. even yes. even even something as simple as when i try to get an airbnb rental you know yeah. sometimes people will refuse me because they say oh wait a minute like zahir jal mohammed are you arab or something so even when i just request an airbnb rental i have to say i'm an indian american because sometimes people have these anxieties mm. so now partly what i try to do in these articles is i'm trying to show a a, de- a greater degree of complexity about this election and i think because i think this us election is so critical because people are talking about race in a new way i mean donald trump has attacked literally everybody from the disabled to jews to women, women to mexicans yes, to muslims yes. to hmm. he made jokes about indians and he called yeah. like i mean everybody yeah and so so when i think about my articles i also try to give give voice to a lot of these individuals who um who just can't who can't who can't speak because um you know i grew up not really seeing myself reflected in the media you know hmm. when i was a kid I grew up, you know, I was born in 76. You never see Indians on TV. You never see Indians in the movie. And and even when you see Indians, how 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 are Indians reflected? We're made fun of. We're made we're made fun of for our food. We have smelly food. We talk funny. My mom has a funny accent. My dad mm. looks funny, you know? Yeah. And and I don't want I want a next generation to see no we're not like that. India is a very complex place, you know. When when white people come up to me and ask me about curry, I say, "Is that all I am? Am I just some sort of resource for you to talk to me about your curry like come on like yeah. i love curry and i exactly. love indian food yeah but talk to me about something else yes. you it's know it's not about taj mahal and curries yeah. yeah i mean the joke that i always make and no one really gets the joke is ever since obama won people <laughs> come up to me and say where are you from where are you from and i don't answer that question anymore because i'm from california Yes. You know, but no one wants that. They want to hear, "Well, where are you originally from? Originally, originally from?" Yes. Said, Come on, let me just buy my coffee and have my day, please. <laughs> <laughs> We don't need to talk about this. <laughs> but that's a separate issue. I know. So before uh, deciding to become a journalist uh, and author, you spent a decade working in politics. Yeah. Right? You have been doing a lot. So tell our listeners about that experience. Oh, it was it was amazing. I mean, I worked um You know, I, I climbed my way up in DC. It took me a long time, but I worked at Amnesty International doing human rights work, which was wonderful. I covered the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, and I, 
actually was there up until the Arab Spring. No, sorry, in 2009, so the Arab Spring yeah, was... Yeah, that is one question I was yeah. really interested in about the Arab Spring. Yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. one thing I would say about, um, about doing human rights work in Washington is, mm-hmm. you know, the... You know, if you look at, let's say, the problem with ISIS today, and they're such a horrible, despicable group, you know, the U.S. has been ignoring so many of these human rights crises for a really long time. So let's look at a a place like Bahrain, for example. Let's look Mm -hmm. at Tunisia, Libya, okay? Yeah. When I was at Amnesty, we kept talking about Bahrain, but no one would meet with us to talk about how the king is oppressing his own community, mm-hmm. right? His own people. No one, they'd say, oh, Bahrain, who cares? Yeah. We would talk about how there's millions of people being displaced from Iraq, but no one really cares. Yes. You know, um, and so I think for me, it's it's really sad that there were so many signs then on the wall about where we would end up today. I think that there's so many failed policies, both by the Bush administration and the Obama administration, that led to this massive refugee problem that we see today, this alienation, Mm -hmm. you know, because when people are alienated, it leads to awful things. Um, So I think for me, working in politics, working on these issues was was amazing, but it was also very frustrating, too, because you realize you're constantly running up against issues Mm -hmm. where... People don't want to talk about certain things. You know, people don't want to talk about immigration. They don't want to talk about Guantanamo. I think on a personal level, the reason why I enjoyed it was that I think we need more and more people to to join politics. We need more Indian Americans, more Pakistani Americans, Bangladeshi Americans. And I was really proud to be part of that effort. And I'm happy to see more and more you know, diverse people of color, you know, going into politics is we need that because, you know, I would go into rooms and you would have people talk about, you know, South Asian policy and they'd really never been to South Asia. Yeah. I mean, I know people, I, I've been in meetings before where, you know, especially when I worked in the U.S. Congress, where someone is talking about India and they're just completely incorrect. And it's because, so frustrating, and, right? It's yeah. awful. And, yeah. I, you know, I've been in meetings where, like, mm-hmm. some, like, I remember this guy was like, yeah, I spent time in India. Oh, where did you go? I was in Bombay. Oh, where in Bombay? I was at the Taj for two days. You were at the Taj in, you know, South Bombay <laughs> for two India. days. And how is that, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, go out and talk to people, you yes. know? And, yeah. and that's always been a frustrating thing. And I think partly, you know, I have a friend of mine, I won't say his name, but... You know, he is, he's, he's, he's Indian American, he's Hindu. Mm-hmm. And he was asked a question when he worked in a U.S. government office, are you capable as an Indian talking about Pakistan? And you think uh, it's such an awful question mm-hmm. because, you know, white people aren't asked if they're going to be objective. But yes. it's just this question that's assumed that I'm going to go and ask this person because he has a quote-unquote accent because of his name. We're going to ask him this question. And so I think... Partly, I think about, you know, it was a great experience, but it was also frustrating. And I hope it's getting better. But, you know, there is this notion that somehow, like, because we're Indians, we're not objective to talk about India. And I used to care about it, but now I'm too old to care. I've been through too much. I still get asked it, but now I just laugh it off, you know. But I've seen it really ruin careers. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, Indian you know, who are Pakistani, and they're told, oh, you're, you're too close to Pakistan, you can't talk about it. And so you end up with some random white dude that's, you know, b- barely been. I've got a friend of mine, she's a, she's a writer, she's writing a novel about Pakistan. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I shouldn't say this. And she's never been to Pakistan. 
I was like, it's kind of hilarious. And, uh, and I looked at it and I said, that like, that's yes. absurd. If I'm going to write an article about a cardiologist, I should talk to a cardiologist. It's yes. kind of basic. Definitely. <laughs> and she kept talking to me, asking me, tell me about Pakistan. And I was like, no, I'm Indian. <laughs> and I thought, like, this is awkward. Your book is not going to do so well. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So I going sh- about that, uh, the Arab, uh, yeah, the Arab, Arab Spring, Spring we were talking about, and it happened in 2010, 2000. right? Uh, when, 2011, yeah. It, yeah, and then you left the area in 2009, Yeah, right? exactly. So yeah. did you see this coming? How was it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I definitely, like, let's say, like, Tunisia, which is where the Arab Spring uh-huh. sort of started. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember there was a very famous human rights, um, I forgot his name now, he was um, a very famous human rights uh, leader in Tunisia, and I took him to the U.S. Congress, and he kept talking about how there's widening inequalities in Tunisia. People are very frustrated. Um, people very much want uh, change. And no one really cared, right? Because Tunisia was, quote-unquote, stable. You have a dictator. <laughs> it's a very popular tourist site. And so at some point, there's a, a snapping point where people say, well, wait a minute, you know, who's making money off these, you know, this tourism? It's these big, you know, multinationals. Because I think so much of the problem is a failure is also a failure of neoliberal policies. So I, I did see change happening in Tunisia. Where I didn't see change happening is in Egypt. Many, many years ago, mm. I spent time in Egypt studying Arabic in 1998. I was surprised to see Hosni Mubarak, the, you know, the, the then president of Egypt. I was really surprised because Egypt is such a was and is such an authoritarian state that if you're just you know you go to the you go to the mosque and if a, the 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 imam at the mosque talks a little bit about politics he'll be arrested yeah. and and to see all these people come out and mobilize that was something that I thought was remarkable I didn't expect that now unfortunately one bad thing has been replaced by another bad thing mm-hmm. and we see what's happening is so much instability, so much violence. You know, ISIS is is awful beyond description. Yeah, that is something that I didn't imagine that, and it it really breaks my heart to see all these attacks happening in France and in Orlando, and you know. And they keep happening. There is no end. There is no solution. Right? Yeah, it's like we feel helpless. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, I think the thing with the the solution is, mm-hmm. it's like you know, going back to the subject of of India, like, you know, I write about this ghetto Mm -hmm. and we tend to write about, we tend to talk about problems in India as if they're inevitable. Mm. You know, there's sometimes a fatalistic way which we talk about India. Oh, Hindu Muslim problems have been around since ages. They're never going to go away. That's how people think, yeah. There's been Dalit ghetto since ages. There's Mm. There's been Muslim ghetto since ages. As if somehow different political factors, both Congress and BJP, have been complicit in adding to that. Now, I would say the same is true about a lot of the problems we see in the Middle East, that Mm -hmm. these problems can be ameliorated. And one of them, for example, is something as basic as providing funding for refugees. You know, when I was in Congress and at Amnesty International, in the U.S. Congress, we tried to fight for more funding for refugees. It's very difficult. The U.S. hasn't wanted, and whether it's Republican or Democrat, Mm -hmm. we tried to fight for closing Guantanamo, you know, and it's something that Obama wanted to do his first day in office, but Obama hasn't been able to do that. These policies, they 
build alienation. Now, ISIS isn't only because of that. There's also the religious mm-hmm. element. And the religious element also has to be tackled. And something that I do in my writing, mm-hmm. you know, as a Muslim, I try to also write articles that are also raise difficult questions to other Muslim Americans. I try to do that as well um, in my articles. Um, so I think that also has to be there. But, you know, we, from a policy level, we can enact policies to maybe ameliorate some of these conditions as opposed to this defeatist attitude. Well, the problem has always been there. What are we going to do? Yeah. So talking about this ISIS, right, do you think if existing governments, like uh, whatever the dictatorships were there, if they were not gone, still ISIS would be there? Like, uh, what do you think? I mean, it's hard to... Um, they were it, overthrown, right? And yeah. kind of there was this thing where it all started suddenly. So Yeah, it, it's hard to say, right? Because I think what's interesting about these last attacks with Paris, and there have been mm-hmm. so many attacks in Paris, mm-hmm. is that, you know, we used to always talk about violence as being only those who are economically disenfranchised. So, you know, the people who go and are people who are poor, who are uneducated. But now no, but see, in Bangladesh, exactly. what happened? They were not at all exactly. poor or underprivileged or anything, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and they were so, educated too. Absolutely. And so that's a, that's a really scary, it's a very yeah, scary yeah, thing yeah. that people who are educated, because, you know, I think growing up, one thing that we love to say is, as long as a person is educated. Yeah, yeah. And, and now that's not the case. And so mm. it's really, um, it's really sort of a very frightening thing. I will say this, going back to the issue about, you know, my career in politics. So I'm 39. When I was in, when I was in high school many, Mm -hmm. many years ago, you know, I had an opportunity to work for the California State Assembly. And I was an intern and I was like, you know, I don't know, mailing stuff or whatever, photocopying. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I never felt at the age of 15 when I started my career in politics in the U.S., that I as a Muslim or me as a person of color or me as an Indian was not welcome. Okay, fine, maybe you know everyone was white, but I never m- was made to feel that way. Hmm. And for the longest time, I would go and I would speak at the mosque or I would speak at South Asian groups and I'd mm-hmm. say, look, whether if you, even if you want to work for Google, even if you want to work for a hospital, whatever, spend a summer working in U.S. politics because it will give you an appreciation that's not something I would say today because I think many people are really frightened by this political climate. Yeah. I think going back to the issue of of violence and, and extremism in groups like ISIS, there's no guaranteed way to find it. But I do think it's important to enfranchise people. And when mm-hmm. I see politicians, whether it's someone like Narendra Modi or Donald Trump, and they are using such hateful rhetoric, you're alienating people. You have a whole generation of people who are growing up feeling they're not included, they're not welcome. You know, because of Donald Trump, even if he loses, this election has caused so much pain for people. Yeah. And I right now don't know what to say to people. If someone, if some young person were to come up to me who's Muslim and says, hey, I want to work in the U.S. Congress, I don't know what I would say. I wish I could say it was great, but yeah. I'm also worried about them. You so know? do you think like when you were working there, when you were in high school and the current times, is it... Very difficult being a Muslim, having that name? Without a doubt. Without right. a doubt. I mean, you know, I I left Ahmedabad in 2015, last mm-hmm. year. And it was the hardest thing to come back to America. People always say, oh my gosh, you're so courageous. You moved to India to do this work. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, yeah, maybe, but I think it was more courageous to come back to America. Not that I want to be be saluted, but you know, I come back here and look at the hate crimes. I mean, these are my friends who are being attacked. I mean, I live in Portland. The mosque that I sometimes go to, one of the men was beaten to death. You know, this is America today. Mm. It's much worse. Now, when I was a kid, sometimes people, you know, white kids would make fun of me. They would call me bad names and I don't want to say it on the radio. But I never worried that I would be beaten. Mm. You know, I worry. I mean, just last night I was hanging out. I'm visiting my parents now in California and I was telling them, you know, telling my mom, you know, please be careful when she's on the train. You know, don't don't take out her 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 prayer books. Don't be careful. Like don't do these things anymore. You 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 have yeah. to be careful. Now, my parents are Muslims, but I have friends who are Sikh. They yeah. go to a, a soccer um a football game, an American football game. Yeah. And because they wear they keep the turban, Mm-hmm. They're they're worried. That's sad. That because sad. when I was a kid, yes. you know, I got to go to football games, and I the only thing I was worried about is whether or not my team wins. <laughs> but now my friend, you know, my friend Bavneet, he's going to take his son to the game. I don't want Bavneet to worry about his son and what his son wears or what Bavneet wears. Yes. that's not fair. Yeah. you know, I want I want him to enjoy a good, happy childhood. Yes. So that's a sad thing. I want that to change. Yeah, and there's such a sensitive issue uh, but still i would like to ask you do you feel safe in india how is it because even in india there is this hindu muslim yeah. <laughs> thing and all that so do you well, think I, that I, i was going to say i probably should you know <laughs> say something happy you know the one thing about india i was there long enough to realize huh? there are so many indias so many indias yeah, i yeah. write about amdavad hmm. uh, and i read about gujarat and i've been all over gujarat but you know I was in Calcutta just for a vacation um maybe like 2015 or something or 14. I mean Calcutta was amazing. I love Calcutta. Yeah. I mean I fell in love with Calcutta. I mean Bombay is amazing. Delhi. You know, um Delhi is very different. You know, I remember when I was in Delhi, I saw a restaurant and it was like Indian Pakistani food and it was in Hoskas village. Yeah. And I was shocked and I kept taking photos and my friend said, "What are you doing taking all these photos?" and I said, "Because in Ahmedabad, you could never ever 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 write the word Pakistan or say the word Pakistan." So there's many Indias. Kerala yeah. is very different. And so I think when people ask me about about India I can say the India that I write about is a very is one aspect of India, but there are mm-hmm. many Indias. Yeah. You know, and I I don't want it's just like there's many Americas. You know, there's America for me, there's America for African Americans, there's America for for white Americans. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I hope that the India that I saw is not the India for all Indians. Hmm. The India that I saw is very frightening. It's an India where, you know, Muslims and Dalits and low caste Hindus are are beaten up. You know, yeah. they're not given housing. But I also know that I've got, you know, friends in Bangalore who don't have those experiences. And hmm. that to me, I'm glad I stayed in India long enough and I was fortunate to travel enough in India to see so many Indias. You know, I go to Calcutta and I feel like it's a totally different country. Yeah. You know, um I go to um you know Rajasthan just yeah. neighboring to Gujarat. You know yeah. Udaipur is so different. I know. And trust me you I know? didn't ask you this question to yeah. make you say positive things. Yeah. I just wanted to But overall say know about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because in general yeah sometimes we think that okay maybe in India people are now safe they're educated yeah. they are very broad minded but no maybe things haven't changed and yeah. maybe you had a different well, experience so I mean, we never know. Yeah, yeah, I mean I wish I'd say the one thing that mm-hmm. you know I think the one thing about let's say the United States and India that's very different is that you know partly what really gave me hope in India is you have so many amazing writers and filmmakers mm-hmm. and artists who are speaking out 
from famous people like Amr Khan to small little writers Javed that we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but then also you have amazing journalists like there's a woman named Neha Dixit. She just mm. she wrote she writes amazing pieces, who just do really incredible work. Now in the United States, there are there are obviously amazing writers, yeah. but I do think that you know as writers and as journalists. We do need to do more in this country. We're living in a very frightening time. I mean, let's look at what's happening to Mexican-Americans. Let's look at the number of people being deported under the Obama administration. And I think for me, I always think that, you know, um, there's a lot of people fighting back in India. And there are people in the United States, but I wish there were more in this country. And that, to me, is a big difference. You know, I do think that I see a lot of silence. I see so many problems in the world, and I pick up a newspaper... I was just at a coffee shop and I pick up a newspaper and people write as if nothing is happening. Here's the best place to get a sandwich. Okay, fine. I, know, I like I a sandwich. Know. But tell me about also what's happening. Yes. You know, not many people know that there's a number of Indian Americans that are being deported as well, too, and Indians that, you know, enter the country illegally. You know, I have friends in India who want to come to the U.S., but they get oh. harassed at the airport. Yes. We need to talk about that, yeah. you know, because... Yeah. Um, so that's just, we're, we're, I think we need to just enlarge the conversation. Yeah, you know? it's not about where to get the best Indian food. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Zahir, you were director for this Amnesty International, yeah. right? And you briefed senior officials at the White House and the State Department and authored numerous congressional resolutions. And in 2009, you were asked to testify before the U.S. Congress about human rights abuses in uh-huh. UAE. You were yeah. awarded yeah. by UN, right? So Correct. tell me more about it. How was yeah, it? Yeah, so... Uh, in 2009, there was an unfortunate incident in, in Dubai about uh, about torture. And so mm. I was asked to testify in front of the what they call the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission. So I testified with someone from Human Rights Watch. And we were basically talking about, because one of the things that it's very common in the Middle East, in the Gulf, I should say, specifically, is um, you have these South Asian laborers, mostly Bangladeshi, some Sri Lankan, some Indian, mm-hmm. many Pakistanis who come and, you know, they get higher salaries in the Gulf, but they're offer they're often subjected to, and this is a direct quote from Human Rights Watch, slave-like conditions. Hmm. And so they might be getting paid, you know, twice as much or three times as much as what they would be given in India, but they're oftentimes abused physically, sexually, mentally. So I was writing, I was speaking about that. And then, you know, based on that, then I was given this award. But um, that's something that continues to... Um, it continues to sort of um, to to really bother me is the way in which I've been to the Middle East and the way in which South Asian laborers are treated, mm. you know. And I've seen this everywhere in Saudi Arabia, in Dubai, in Qatar, uh, and so that was sort of an interest. And I hope you know um, at some point to to write more about this if given the chance. But it's a, it's a tough place to to write on because they don't want to write about these abuses. You know they. They, you know, they have these fancy, shiny hotels in Dubai, but people yeah. forget who's building them. Definitely. And it's hard, right? Because you go to a lot of these, like, workers from Kerala, uh-huh. and you say, like, you know, how is it like here? And they say, well, they're making, you know, 30,000, 40,000 rupees a month, whereas in India they might get 10,000 rupees. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it's a tough thing. So it's very easy for me to be judgmental as an American and say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be treated like this, but yeah. it's a class issue, yes. you know? And so... Um, it's a tough, it's a really tough situation. And I think these Arab governments are are really exploiting workers. And, mm. you know, many of them end up going off and doing awful things. You know, you come back to, after living in Qatar for a few years, and you go back to India, and you've become a different person. You go back to Pakistan, you've become a different person. 
because you've been you've seen all of that. You might have a big bank account full of money, but yeah. what has your life become? And so we also need to talk about that. I think it's important to talk about, you know, class issues as well. Hmm. So talking to you, I realize, Zaheer, that you have been to all these places where injustice is happening, things are unfair, there are tortures, there are awful <laughs> things happening. And yet... I find you a very positive person and because for me sometimes when I read all this yeah. I even cancel my chai time I feel so sad that people are dying and I'm doing a show here right and that's not a good attitude we have to work yeah. for it instead of feel like shutting ourselves down right so how do you do that I don't know what I, I keeps mean, you going um I don't know I mean I think I mean I will say that I think this you know this is it's it's tough it's tough work that that we all do but yeah. i think that i guess the one thing i would say is that um you know i was lucky when i was young that mm-hmm. i was given opportunities i was given an opportunity to work in the california state assembly i was given an opportunity by professors at berkeley to you mm-hmm. know write articles and and i i think partly it's also that you know i want to create more opportunities for people and i think for yeah, me yeah. when i see things like you know Donald Trump or when i see you know i'll give you an example when i see something like you know when i was in amdabad one of the hardest things for me to watch was um the the garba in uh, you know the 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 dances that happened yes. around navratri uh-huh. you know i love going to garba i yeah, grew up yeah. going to garba you yeah. know um this the indians you know the the dance the gujarati dance yeah, yes. and then when i see all of a sudden you see like young muslim boys not being able to go i think that's awful right because yeah. more than anything I mean, people say, oh, my God, you want to defeat Modi. No, I have a basic goal. I want these Muslim kids, boys and girls, to be able to go to Garba. Like, I got to go to Garba. Yes. That's it. It's simple. Such a simple thing. Simple thing. Exactly. I want them to enjoy because it's so Mm -hmm. much fun. It's like, it's one of the things I love about Gujarat. There's no better place in the world than Gujarat during Navratri. It's so much fun. so true. And when I see these crazy people saying, oh, you can't come because you're this or that. So what motivates me mm-hmm. it's quite simple i yeah. want people to enjoy their life and to have fun yes. and sometimes politicians get in the way of that and sometimes these groups get in the way but that's really my goal like i don't want to like i don't really even want to change the world i don't think that's the point i think the point is like make life a little bit better for people and i was lucky that when i was young i had wonderful wonderful professors who you know opened doors for me and wonderful mentors that opened doors for me and now now that i'm writing if I can sort of write about people's experience or if my articles can maybe open up some doors for people, then, yeah, that's great. I'd love to do that. That is such a great way to look at yeah. things, yeah. So talking about all this equality and fairness and a better world, we have all this and then we have Trump. <laughs> <laughs> we have to end on Trump, yeah. Yes. Tell me your take on the phenomenon, which uh, is called Trump. Well, you know, um, I wrote in the Economic Times last year, I think last you know, October or September that I thought, I think I wrote, it'd be astronomically unlikely for Donald Trump to become the Republican nominee. And of course, mm-hmm. I was wrong, as so many yeah, others are wrong. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a few factors. I think one is the Republicans don't really have too many other attractive candidates. But two, I think we just need to say it, which is there are groups of particularly white Americans that feel very anxious about the changes in the world. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, the changes in the United States. United States yeah. And I think Trump is a politician that people like him because he's crude and he's brash and he'll say things and he'll he'll make uh, sexist comments about women. And he's sort of like that guy. And, you know, that like 
it's like there's this American movie called The Campaign, and the more the, the politician in the movie says awful things, the more people like him. And so Donald Trump has become like that. And I think it comes from people's anxieties about race and people's anxieties about the economy. You know, um, there is... We're living in a very different time. It's 2016. By, I think, 2042, America will be a majority non-white country. Already we say that in California. Yeah, yeah. We're at the Stanford campus. You teach at Berkeley. I mean, Berkeley is already like that. Yes, yes. You know, and so I live in Portland, which is the whitest city in America. Like yeah. the whitest. And so, like, you know, I see it, right? I see the way, you know, whites are always... They carry themselves as if they're going to be the center of every single conversation. It's not like that anymore. We have we had Obama and we might have, you know, Clinton. So we might, you know, be... And so I think Trump is this joke that just got too far. And I used to joke about it. and But now I find it very scary because even if he yeah, loses, yeah. there are people who know, who now want a politician like that. You know, it's like it's like the same thing I would say about Modi. Okay, supposing Modi gets in a spaceship and leaves the planet and just stays up in space for the next hundred years. So what? Who cares? I mean, Modi is not the problem here. Trump is not the problem here. Mm. We have to address these mindsets that what happens when thinking goes exactly behind. Exactly. It's the same thing I would say about, you know, ISIS. Like, Hmm. you know, ISIS is awful, but there's a certain mindset that unfortunately there are. There are Muslims in the world that resort to violence, and they think violence is acceptable. That's a mindset that we have to change, and I try to address that in my articles. There's a mindset in America with a lot of white Americans. They think it's okay to say these these things to black people. Yeah, It's okay to say these things to women. It's okay for, oh, women should be like this. That's not acceptable. Yeah. And I think that is the real battle today. This isn't really a normal election. This is a battle between kind of a quote-unquote normal politician, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump, who's just this bizarre character, you know? Look, I don't think it's fair to compare Modi and Trump because Modi... He at least he was he governed a state. He was the you know yeah. he governed Gujarat. He's for, a leader, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Trump has no experience. No, no. And um, Trump may not even want to be president. So um, it's a frightening time. I'm positive. I'm certain to say positive. I'm hopeful that he'll be defeated. Um, mm-hmm. But let's see. Let's find out. You know. Yeah, and then on the same issues about Hillary, then what do you think of her as our you know, future? So I I was fortunate to be in a meeting with Hillary Clinton. Um, in 2009 or 10 when I worked in Congress. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say, she's one of the smartest, most amazing, most dynamic politicians I've seen. Now, I'm critical of some of her policies, mm-hmm. particularly her foreign policy. But, you know, when I worked in Washington, D.C., I saw an incredible amount of sexism, an incredible amount of sexism, okay? Yeah. So, something as simple as this. You know, when I go for a job interview, I think about do I wear... Uh, a blue tie or do mm-hmm. I wear a red tie? That's it. Yeah. But women have to think about a whole set of other issues. Sure. You know, how long should my skirt be? How, what kind of blouse should I wear? And then they I'm get asked. I'm glad that you are yeah, and understanding they, this issue. Yeah. And they get asked all <laughs> yeah, these. Yeah. And that when I worked in Congress, it's mm-hmm. like this boys club and people make the most awful sexist, misogynist comments. Mm-hmm. Now, to see someone like Secretary Clinton come up through that world, reach the top, become a senator, become the secretary of state, where the State Department is such an old boys club. Let's drink and let's talk about, you know, the days, Mm. the Cold War. And for her to come and reach the top, and I'm saying that when I was in a meeting with her, you know, she she was the smartest person in the room, and she, she, she let us know that. Yes. And it was awesome. 
And so I think many men are threatened when they see a woman so smart and so t so talented. I think we need that. Yeah. So yeah, I am critical yeah. of some of her things, but I want a woman president. I, I'm I'm ready for it. I hope we're all ready for it. You know, it's Definitely. long overdue. I'm ready for it's it. It's been a long time. <laughs> exactly. It's 2016. And Why did it take yeah, so long? And not just because we don't want Trump, and not just because we want a woman, but. Because she is smart and she is she's she's capable. Yeah, she absolutely, it. absolutely, totally, hundred hundred percent. Yeah. So Zahir, the thing is, I can keep talking to you yeah. all day. Well, thank you so much. This <laughs> and more than that, yeah. because there are so many things I want to ask, and I'm very sure that we are going to continue our discussion I hope more. So. I hope so. Thank but you. before we go, I want to ask you about your book. Can yeah, you tell sure. us more about it? Yeah, sure. So I've been writing this book. Hopefully, it'll be done by next year. Um, and it's just a book about um, the the ghetto of, of Jubalpura because it has an interesting story. It was actually started as a Hindu-Muslim area in 1973. Mm -hmm. And then subsequent riots, sort of Hindus were pushed out, Muslims were pushed in. And so um, I'm trying to examine in the book about, you know, the, basically it sort of starts with the riots and looks at the aftermath because in, in June of 2002, yeah. you know, Modi had a choice of either pursuing reconciliation hmm. or... or closing down the camps and calling an election. And he chose the latter. And so to me, that, that initial decision of Modi had a massive repercussion because the ghetto went from about being 200,000 to what it is today, which is a half a million. So I'm trying to sort of use the ghetto to examine, A, what is the long-term effects of the riots, but hmm. B, what happens when trauma is not addressed? Because it's an area very much of trauma. And so I'm trying to sort of show a different side of riots in India because it's, you know, may, many people look at riots in the immediate aftermath. I'm sort of saying 10, 15 years later, to me, the aftermath of the Gujarat riots is not injustice. That's the aftermath of every riots in India from 1984 to Muzaffarnagar. Yeah. The aftermath of at least the 2002 riots, I argue, is actually ghettoization. So yeah, yeah. that's what it's about. So Definitely. thank you so much for having me. No, yeah. and so, I'm so looking forward to your book yeah. and I'm grateful that people like you, youth like you, I should say, are coming <laughs> forward, doing this, and you're making a way for so many uh, more thank people. You. Thank right? you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I wish you all the best for your book and for your journalism, yeah. for your life, yeah. and I hope that you'll come again on Chai Time Absolutely. to discuss your book and your It'd be views. my pleasure. Thank you so much. Brian. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks a lot. All the best. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.